I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Today, we bring you Dr. Michael Kurz. Uh, Dr. Kurz is an incredible friend of ours, and truthfully, he is a friend of any EMS provider. Um, we hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, as we talk about the future of resuscitation, uh, Dr. Kurz is an emergency physician. He's a resuscitation scientist and an EMS physician champion, previous medical director, paramedic. Uh, I won't spoil the story for you, but you definitely need to listen to his introduction. Uh, but Dr. Kurz is an associate professor at the University of Alabama School of Medicine in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Department of Surgery. Uh, you can listen as he talks about um, the services that are offered at University of Alabama, Birmingham, uh, where he serves and uh, does a lot of great work. Uh, Dr. Kurz also serves as the immediate past chair of the AHA Emergency Cardiac Care Subcommittee on Systems of Care and has contributed to uh, the ECC guidelines since 2010. Uh, he regularly reviews for circulation resuscitation, critical care medicine, and has authored more than 100 peer-reviewed articles in resuscitation science. Uh, so before we move on, I do want to say that if you have an opportunity to meet Dr. Kurz or attend a conference where he's speaking, um, you would definitely regret not doing so. Um, he is an incredible public speaker and his vision for the future is absolutely inspiring, um, and his care and his belief in EMS and systems of care um, is truly the tip of the spear. So without further ado, let's dive in and let's listen to what Dr. Kurz has to say. Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been, you know, we, we joke about how we've been wanting to get you on here for a long time, but man, it surely is a, it's a pleasure to sit down with you and get to talk, finally. Yeah, I'm always happy to talk shop. Uh, you know, um, I eat and breathe this stuff. This is what I do. And uh, so, yeah, I'm always happy to spend some time talking shop. Absolutely. Well, you definitely made some waves uh, here locally in the Atlanta area uh, during the the uh, ECC conference um, after your uh, after your talk there. I tell you, there were a lot of people that were like that guy with uh, with the with the long blonde hair. <laughs> oh my gosh, he was beautiful. Uh, oh, great. That, that's what I'm concerned. You know what? If I ever need an agent, I know who I'm coming to. All right. Well, I was really embarrassed because I thought they were talking about me forever. And oh, then I enough. realized it was you. And I was like, this is awkward. <laughs> well, man, I think, um, you know, I think our audience, they would, uh, they would really be missing something special if they didn't know about your background, didn't know your story before we introduce what you do now as a emergency physician and a research a researcher and EMS uh, medical director. All of that is amazing, but I think what really sets the tone is uh, is your story. So if you don't mind, tell us about, you know, where'd you grow up and what got you started in all this? Uh, so uh, I grew up uh, on Chesapeake Bay. Um, I, uh, I'm from, a you know, a, my, my family lives in a little town called Urbana. Uh, it's got 500 people. Uh, it's, uh, 
quicker to go most places by boat. And, uh, and forgive my ignorance, what state are we talking about here? Virginia, sorry, Commonwealth of Virginia. Gotcha. Virginia, Chesapeake Bay, there's five rivers, Urbana's on the Rappahannock. Awesome. Um, and uh, so it's, it's um, if you know where Richmond is, it's about 45 miles uh, east as the crow flies from Richmond. Mm. And, um, and so how did I get my start? Um, I went to UVA to be a lawyer um, uh, and uh, took a summer job as an open water lifeguard in Virginia Beach. And most of my supervisors at the time were medics. And I, and, uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm young and I'm pressurable. I'm 18 years old and, and I'm a open water lifeguard. And, um, and, uh, and I, I wrote along a couple times, uh, because Virginia beach has this wonderful all volunteer still has an all volunteer service, um, wow. um, for a large municipality, which is in large part unheard of, um, where, uh, the vol where in most, um, large areas as the as the municipality grows they essentially outgrow the ability to to nurture a volunteer service um, and Virginia Beach rather than allowing uh, many of these smaller volunteer services to to have the same fate uh, effectively uh, combine them all um, and so I rode along in the ambulance and then I decided in the middle of my uh, uh, I think it was my first year of college, that um, what I really wanted to do was go to medical school. And so uh, I went and became an EMT. Um, and then I went and got my medic uh, in Richmond and Odemsa. And so I commuted uh, from the University of Virginia in Charlottesville to Odemsa to get my medic. Uh, and then I rode with Rescue Company One in Charlottesville. Um, uh, CARS, as it was affectionately known, the Charlottesville Albemarle Rescue Squad, at one point, was the busiest all-volunteer service in the nation uh, when I was there, and that's circa like '96 to '03. Um, they would run 12,000 calls a year, all volunteer. Wow! Um, and uh, and so I did that all through undergrad. Uh, I went to Fire Academy one summer. That's actually how I met my wife. Uh, we were living in the same apartment uh, complex. And I came home from Fire Academy one morning, one afternoon after fighting fire all afternoon. It's like 100 degrees, and I smelled horrendous. <laughs> and uh, and I meet I meet this beautiful woman in the and we were portal apartments, so you had to walk by everybody to get to your apartment. And I walk by this beautiful woman and I say hello, and she goes, "You smell bad." <laughs> uh, and that's how I met my wife. And um, yeah, well, you know so, that's she. You know it's true love if she can if she can move yeah, past I, that. She can, yeah, she can look uh, look past that, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, and so uh, I got bitten by the bug. I rode as a volunteer medic all the way through medical school uh, at the University of Virginia. I lived on the range in this. Uh, they have this odd thing where you live in these uh, uh, rooms that that Jefferson built as part of the original um, structure. And wow. I used to park the chase car out front. Uh, I take the chase car at night and, uh, and, and chase. Um, um, so yeah. Cool. And, so, and then uh, I went to medical school there at Virginia. I graduated um, with my MD and a, a master's in uh, clinical trials and biostatistics. And I went to residency in the, I, I truly chose my residency based on the place that would put me in a helicopter. And really? that was, yes, absolutely. And that was the University of Chicago. 
And uh, I matched at the University of Chicago. Uh, at the time, it was mandatory flight. Um, so the first day of second year, I was a flight physician flying uh, doc nurse um, in a dolphin. Uh, yeah, uh, N365UC was uh, the University of Chicago helicopter. If you watch the old show ER, right, yeah. the helicopter in that show is the one I used to fly on. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and so I went and, fl I went and trained there and uh, spent three years there and was chief of the boat my third year and got done and got recruited to Richmond to be a fellow in emergent cardiac care. And so uh, I trained to do all of the fun stuff in cardiology. Uh, uh, short of, let's see, I can't cath people. And um, I, so I don't cath. Um, and uh, I don't have to do clinic. Um, but I spent a lot of time in the ICU and stuff uh, during fellowship. And, and then um, started as a junior faculty member and uh, about 10 years ago got, uh, and while I was a junior faculty member, I was medical director of Henrico County. Um, that's a suburb north of Richmond. I, everybody knows Richmond Ambulance Authority in the EMS world. Um, they have a long, uh, very storied tradition. Um, but uh, I was responsible for the, the northern suburb which is Henrico. Um, we had 500 personnel, uh, 200 medics. At the time, we had an RSI program, which was unheard of. Wow. Um, so I had I had 29 or 30 RSI medics, um, and we were all ha all hazards. And um, and then I got done and got recruited to UAB to be a scientist. And so I spent the last decade at UAB doing science. Um, the type of science I do, I'm a I'm a resuscitation scientist. Um, all of my work is in uh, intra-arrest or post-arrest care. Um, and recently, in the last couple of years, I branched into um, uh, disparities in resuscitation um, because I think really that's the new frontier in, in resuscitation science. Wow, I tried to write all that down. I didn't get all that. <laughs> <laughs> so... So tell us about uh, tell us about where you work right now. Tell us about your shop. Uh, so I work at UAB, um, the University of Alabama Birmingham. Uh, that is not Roll Tide, right? Roll Tide <laughs> is in Tuscaloosa. It's an it's an hour west of us. Um, that's where the undergrads are. UAB is um, uh, got most of the graduate schools in the UA system. So on the campus of UAB. Um, I've got a public health school, a nursing school, the School of Medicine. Um, interestingly, uh, the library science, um, the School of uh, Optometry, um, uh, health professions. I have just about every graduate school except a law school. The law school, interestingly, for whatever reason, is still in Tuscaloosa. Um, and uh, yeah, and the University of Alabama, Birmingham, or UAB, as we call it, the home of the Blazers, um, we are the death star of modern medicine. Nice. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I'm going to screw these numbers up, but, but um, we're in the top, I think we're in the top 10 for largest hospitals in the United States. Um, we're in the top five for largest teaching institutions. Um, the hospital has uh, uh, 1,187 beds. Uh, I have over 250 ICU beds. Um, the hospital proper spans nine city blocks, um, and we are the only only uh, for the state of Alabama. So unlike other states where um, every major metropolitan center has kind of one of us, and maybe on a smaller scale, 
um, but uh, has one of us, um, where you have kind of a quaternary, tertiary slash quaternary center. Um, in Alabama, we're it, right? So we're so to put that in perspective, we're the only burn center, we're the only level one trauma center, we're the only level three wow. NICU, we're the only place that does MFM, uh, um, maternal fetal medicine, so high risk obstetrics. We're the only place you can get a transplant. Um, uh, and then out, and then from UAB, um, all the major municipalities have kind of a what you would think of as a community or regional hospital, um, maybe 250 beds. Uh, and then outside of that, you rapidly get remote very, very fast. And um, counties will have a single critical access hospital. The vast majority of counties have a single critical access hospital. If you're lucky, it's got 25 beds. Um, it probably has four to six beds in the ED. Some of them have a two or four bed ICU. Most of them don't. Um, average daily census in those hospitals might be five. Um, and so almost everything that is serious in, in the state of Alabama gets transferred to us at UAB. If you get shot in the state of Alabama, you're coming to, you're getting flown to us. Awesome. Um, so our catchment area goes all the way east to kind of Grady and Atlanta, uh, south to the Gulf, north till you get to Vanderbilt, and west until you get to kind of New Orleans. Jackson, Mississippi's in there um, uh, between us and New Orleans, but really a lot of the folks in Mississippi just come to us. Um, and so we have a catchment area of, of like, uh, like 7 million maybe. So we're, uh, we're, uh, the biggest employer in the state of Alabama. Um, uh, yeah, we're the death star. <laughs> what, what is, I know a lot of people understand like ED volume. Um, yeah. what is your yearly volume in your ED? Uh, so it's, it's hard to kind of gauge that, right? Because COVID screwed everything up. Um, my guess is um, our ED volume, uh, a fair assessment of our ED volume is probably somewhere, somewhere in the 85 to 90,000 uh, visit range. Um, and you have to take that in, you have to understand that we don't do kids at UAB. So we have a separate, uh, I think 250, maybe 300 bed children's hospital literally across the street. It's part of the complex, right? But it's a separate entity across the street. And so, and I think they see like 35,000 a year. Um, so uh, th that's kind of the volume, that's kind of the volume. Um, to put it in perspective for trauma, uh, this year uh, we had, uh, I think 6,300 activations for trauma, uh, of which half are penetrating. Wow. Uh, all right, Alabama's a, 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 you know, a, a free carry state. Um, it's, it's relatively, uh, uh, unrestricted to, to possess a firearm as long as you're not like a felon or something. Um, and so there's lots of penetrating trauma. Um, so that for those who work or, or are around a level one trauma center, a level one trauma center only has to have something like, I think 1200 maybe activations a year in order to have enough volume to be level one. So we, we literally will see in the course of a year, uh, five fold, like mm -hmm. we could, we could handle, uh, we, we have the volume for five trauma centers. Wow. Yeah. 
Now, with with all of that activity and all of the projects and the research and the science that you're involved with that we will touch on in this conversation, how do you stay involved and engaged with paramedics and with EMS? Because I know that's where your heart is. Your heart is in emergency medicine, resuscitation. Um, how, How are you able to stay involved? Well, so uh, I've spent my career building systems of care. Like I started as a STEMI guy. So, so when I started and we published kind of those, the first couple of papers about ER docs activating the cath lab, that was very novel. And then the idea we could push it out to medics and let, and let uh, uh, EMS providers activate the cath lab, that was very novel at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, I think in, in large municipalities, we kind of take it for granted, actually. Um, but um, I, th- I I think if you the way I stay engaged is if you treat medics as professionals, right? That they are, um, that they return the favor, right? And you can ask more of of our medics, right? And and then also emergency medicine is a. Also, I'll say emergency medicine is a. Uh, uh, we operate best when we have the esprit de corps of a family. Mm. right it's uh, because in my in my shop i cannot possibly supervise everything all the time there's no way there's too much volume and i have to rely not only on my residents my house staff but i've got to rely on my good nurses and my good medics to know enough to warn me before bad things happen right and that means you got to work with smart people and 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 if you I, I think if you treat medics with respect, right, for the professionals that they are, um, uh, you know, frankly, they rise to the occasion. Uh, it's certainly what what I always uh, did when I was a medic. And 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 the intangibles that you get from that, I mean, they're gold. Do you think that? Um medical directors should be well compensated or should this be should it be more of a a pro bono or an altruistic endeavor for um for that group or or should it really become something that's uh you know part of a profession um you get what you pay for right okay <laughs> so when i was when i was a medical director in Hereco county i had a contract and the the fire department put up money that covered my clinical time and i was physically on site one full day a week right and then the rest of the time i was on call right if they needed something they needed me there was a sometimes there was a, a there'd be a swat action or um uh, a mass casualty if there's a plan one i was going you know unless i was unless i was physically on duty in the ed but if there was a a plan one, and I was not physically in the ED receiving, I was expected to be there. Um, that's the way it ought to be. Uh, in Alabama, we have the opposite model, and medical directors, for the most part, are not compensated. And um, outside of major municipalities, you get what you pay for. And, um, and, and so my hope is there's been a, not a fair bit of controversy with um, the creation of the EMS board. Um, mm. And my hope is that what that will do in the long run is elevate the profession, both as a medical director and trickle down to the medics, 
right? So that it will rise, it will raise the, the professional expectations, the pay, uh, the leave, the benefits, the education, so that ultimately we're providing better service to the communities which we serve. You have to start with providing an engaged medical director. And the way you, and frankly, the way you do that now is you, you got to pay for it. So I don't know if it's state by state, but is there any truth uh, nationally? And I've heard um, several times people say, uh, well, a medical d director that is compensated is more liable. So if you take no compensation, it decreases or eliminates your liability. Do you, do you know anything about that uh, nationwide or, or by state? I think, um, so I don't, I, I'm, I am not an attorney. Um, I could go get my wife. Uh, she would be able to tell us. Uh, but uh, that, that, all joking aside, um, I, I think that is because the medical director hopes in that instance that if they don't take any money, that they're still shielded by like a good Samaritan law, right? Um, and, and that will vary from municipal, municipality to municipality and state to state. And, and, and um, I am... I. I no, I, so I, I, I don't think so. And and let me let's let's talk about that for a second. Um, the EMS cases uh, on on occasion, I get asked if I will look at uh, like a lawsuit. And and frankly, EMS cases are few and far between. They really are. Um, but the ones that I always look at, or the or the ones that have ever been shown to me, are either horribly egregious, right? No one in their right mind would try to defend this, okay? Um, or alternatively, um, uh, they're, they're like abandonment, right? It's, it's like, a, you know, uh, somebody chooses not to respond or, or, they res or, they, or they refuse someone who is clearly intoxicated and that person walks out into traffic or something. Those are the cases that EMS gets, uh, that, that lawyers get. And, and so I don't really think that it provides a modicum of, of liability coverage. I, as a, as a physician uh, and a guy who's had, you know, 500 providers operate under my license, I would much rather be engaged and have whatever resources I need to be engaged. I think that serves the community and serves that purpose much better than uh, not take any money and hope I'm not going to get sued. Mm. Um, I, I think that comes from the Good Samaritan law, and, and I'm not sure that yeah, I'm not sure that applies well. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it just it it makes almost an excuse to um, oh, yeah. not be involved then. Um, you just signed paperwork, and, right? Right. And, and that's the biggest, uh, do you guys do an EMS fellowship at UAB? Yeah, we have an EMS fellowship. We had two fellows last year. We have two fellows this year. Yeah. Um, I'm on the faculty for the fellowship, um, because I'm also EMS boarded. Um, and yeah, and we're, we're turning out true EMS medical directors now. Um, folks who, who, know what a high performing system can do and, now with uh, with those who are who are typically those people that go to those lengths did they have an ems background coming into it or did something just click with them in residency that they said i really want to be involved with this as a career 
Um, I think most of them at some point have had uh, an EMS background or touched it in some way before they go to fellowship. Um, I, very few, um, I think, come to that naturally during residency, right? Um, uh, I th I th I, that would be my, my gut instinct. Um, also, you got to know what you're getting into if you're going to be if you're going to be an EMS fellow, right? So, you essentially understand that when you graduate fellowship, you're gonna if you're going to go be an EMS medical director, you're going to a large municipality um, with a large high performing system because that's frankly the people uh, th those are the those are the agencies that are demanding medical directors who are EMS boarded and rightfully so. Um, and those are the ones that are paying for the coverage. Yeah, do you see an opportunity anywhere where in the rural areas to um, kind of do a uh, a group effort where you would have a, a medical director over a large area, maybe of several yeah. Um, counties? Yeah, no, that, that would be ideal, right? Because we need quality medical direction, maybe more in, in rural areas um, then we need it in large municipalities because the transport times are so much longer. Yeah. And, um, and I think that um, uh, there is uh, the, the I, I don't want to call it the learning curve, right? But the expertise uh, gets generated or, or gets retained so quickly when you're in a large municipality and I'm going to run 10, 12 calls a shift as opposed to in a rural area where you might run, you know, a handful. Um, and so the idea, that's very attractive, the idea that you have a medical director who might be a regional medical director, right, and would have medical direction for five, six, eight, ten agencies. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, um, economy of scale in that manner. Um, uh, some, some regions do that. Uh, there are regions in, in Virginia that do that, um, that provide medical direction uh, on a regional level. Um, and there's pluses and minuses to it. You know, frankly, right, this is EMS. If you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. Um, and so I, I think to the extent that, uh, you know, EMS is always local, if it works for the municipality, I think it, it's something to explore. Yeah. Awesome. So let's, um, let's kind of move towards the, the research and the projects that you have been involved in, because I ultimately want to end up with resuscitation. And well, yeah, let's just start there. What is what is it that fascinates you so much about resuscitation? What is it that gives you the passion for that in particular? Resuscitation is the ultimate time-dependent illness, right? The therapeutic window is so very narrow, right? This even even more narrow than STEMI, more narrow than stroke, more narrow than trauma. It is the ultimate time-dependent window. It's quite okay? literally live or die. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, you don't. People don't fibrillate, and then, and ten minutes later, just stop. Mm. Right. That's a good I mean, point. Like, right. Like that doesn't happen. Right. Um, and truly, modern EMS was built on a system designed to do two things, resuscitate people who fibrillate and, and transport trauma, care for and transport trauma, 
Now, we've taken on lots of other things in the 30, 40, 50 plus years of EMS tradition, okay? But really, that's what it was designed to do. It was to treat cardiac arrest and deliver trauma to a trauma center. Um, uh, and so that's, that's where my passion comes. And, and funny that you talk about it. I, I actually went to fellowship to be a STEMI guy. I didn't want to have anything to do with this resuscitation stuff because I came mm. out of residency and said, all these people die. Um, mm. Mimi Pepperdy. So uh, Joe Arnato of Joe Arnato fame, like, I mean, Joe is a legend, <laughs> right? His wife is Mimi Pepperdy. And she's an inter she is an interventional cardiologist. Uh, Joe's a, a cardiologist by training. And, um, uh, and I distinctly remember, she loves to tell the story uh, of me interviewing with them for fellowship and her suggesting, and this is, this is 03 maybe. Yeah. I was just finishing residency 03 and she suggests maybe I want in on this resuscitation thing. And I said, no, 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 no. I'm a STEMI guy. I don't, I don't want to do that. And this is, this is like the heyday, right? Uh, New England Journal has just published two randomized controlled trials back to back about hypothermia. Um, uh, and I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And, um, and I was a fellow and I got bitten by the bug, um, during fellowship, I resuscitated a cardiac arrest and, uh, and cooled him down. And, um, yeah, I got, I got bitten by it, but it is fundamentally because the physiology is amazing. Um, it's unlike anything else, uh, in medicine in terms of the the time dependent nature of it um it requires a system to take care of it well it is it is not owned by a single silo or a single specialty right it's not stroke is owned by neurology STEMI is owned by cardiology trauma is owned by surgery cardiac cardiac arrest is cardiac arrest and um yeah. And so that's, that's what, that's what makes me passionate about it. Uh, um, truly. So w when you first started uh, kind of going after this with cardiac arrest and you said that, you know, one of the, the things you said was, well, everybody dies. So it's not really not yeah. too interested in that. Um, prior to you kind of embarking on this uh, area of research, what what did what kind of conclusions did you come to very early as to why we have not the needle much in the last several decades? Well, so I was really colored by my experience as a medic, right? So so when I came through as a medic, uh, ninety six, I took my first ACLS class in ninety six, right? This is back when you could fail ACLS, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right? Like, like it, was, it was a badge of honor that you passed as a medic. You passed ACLS. Yeah, before they started giving out participation trophies, it was actually difficult. Yeah, oh, it was very difficult. Like, people failed. Yeah. And, and like, like doctors failed. You'd lose sleep the night before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I, I mean, as an AHA volunteer, I can say that. Like, I, I, I know. <laughs> uh, right? I mean, uh, so... Um, I, I, I distinctly remember that. And I, rem I was very colored by my experience as a medic, which was nobody ever survived. Like, like we, we either called it in the field or we transformed the hospital and they got called immediately. Um, 
but like it w- and 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 the survivors were unicorns right and i i say that as an analogy right um you as a medic you knew somebody who knew somebody who had once resuscitated a cardiac arrest and they survived mm. and there was but nobody ever knew who that was right like you'd heard this story around the firehouse um but there are these unicorns out there right um and while it feels like we haven't moved the needle a whole lot in high performing system nationwide the numbers kind of look the same as they always have kind of right now um if you look at microcosms uh, or, or small areas where there's a high performing system we really have moved the needle like mm-hmm. we've really demonstrated this is a fixable thing right um uh and so there's there's hope um and and the thing that sets those little bastions of cardiac arrest survival let's just call it that's what it is right those municipalities that are high performing from other municipalities is just the system that's built right there's no it's not like native geography or you know um uh limestone in the water right or uh, genetics um, right i mean there's not like this place is really rich and and they've got a bunch of devices and nobody else has got this stuff and right like that's not what it is like it's literally just building a system Mm. that from the from the building blocks that you have and making the and making the investment in the system. It's not about buying ambulances. It's not about it. That's not what it's about. Um, and so um, that's the other thing that really motivates me that that this is fundamentally available to anybody, right? Um, it's just simply about if it's a priority for the community. So, kind of as a follow up to that, um, you know, we do know that we have legitimate um, communities. You know, of course, everybody's going to, you know, know Seattle and um, Arizona, Janesville, Wisconsin, you know, some of those places where, um, you know, some of the giants in resuscitation are. Is there a difference in the way that they are measuring um, not only their system performance, but the way that they're measuring uh, outcomes? Uh, Are they doing it consistently? You know, you know, we, we as we go around and, you know, we know a lot of systems and, and have had a lot of conversations and depending on who you talk to, so-and-so, they all have got a 25% survival rate, got a 50% survival rate. But when you press people on it, it's really difficult to nail down where they're getting those outcomes. Um, a lot of it is, as you're saying, the, uh, oh, well, we kind of just polled each other and said, oh, I, you know, I remember we had this, uh, this cardiac arrest. And, you know, maybe they're working with hospitals to get true outcomes. Maybe they're not. Are those high-performing systems, how are they measuring cardiac arrest differently than in other areas of the country? They're making a commitment to measure. And then they're improving because they know what their data is. That's, that's the difference, right? Um, they make a fundamental commitment to take all comers and measure all of them. And that requires an investment. That requires an investment in um, pulling, uh, pulling the da- there's a data infrastructure that has to exist there, right? Uh, there's lots of ways to skin that cat, um, but fundamentally they're measuring it. And then when they measure it, um, then you know how you can improve. But all of those municipalities you talk about, 
um, Seattle, right? Where, Seattle, where like if if you fall asleep on a park bench, <laughs> right? There's there's like a 50-50 shot that someone's gonna walk over. You're gonna wake up with something yep. to you, right? Um, so Seattle, <laughs> so Seattle, Arizona, um, Milwaukee, um, Richmond, Virginia, the places that truly have demonstrated um, with real numbers. I mean, real believable numbers. Um, that it's possible, right? It's it's possible to hit. Uh, like a 50-50 Ross grade, like that's doable. Um, it's doable to get to a 30% survival rate, right? Uh, all comers. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's an achievable thing. However, you have to, you absolutely have to collect that data to know and be able to tout that's what you're doing. Now, there, there's a lot of return. That that's all sounds very expensive. There's a lot of return on investment for collecting that data. It just has to be realized. And <clears throat> to, to kind of piggyback off of what you just said, I think it, it would be good to appreciate honest data. And, you know, it's whenever you say it's doable to achieve these percentages, what I want people to understand is it's not easy. <laughs> it, it takes a lot of culture change. It takes a lot of work. In your experience, um, how how would a municipality or a service go about getting the true raw data? And, and the you gotta collect it. Gotcha. Yeah, you, you, you got to set up the data infrastructure to collect it. Uh, in the old days, before we had EM, EMS, EMR. Um, right. Yeah, that was, it was manual. Like I, I remember in Henrico County, like physically going through manually <laughs> cardiac, like handwritten cardiac arrest call sheets. Right. But it, it, what it, what it requires is a commitment. Right. Um, and that commitment is not, this is not a switch that you turn on, uh, January one, one year and go, all right, we're doing it. Um, Right? It starts with planning years before when you decide you're going to buy an EMR or whatever, and, and, and you buy one that will track the numbers and talk to CARES for you. Mm. CARES being the, the cardiac arrest registry uh, housed in Atlanta. Um, right? And then maybe the, maybe the next step is an education program for the medics beyond, hey, did you take ACLS? Okay, good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there has to be engagement by the medical director. Um, it's got to be a priority for the medical director. So when I was in Henrico County, when I walked in Monday morning, it was I, it's like it was like clockwork. I walked in Monday morning. Uh, I uh, said hi to the the chief. I said good morning um, before he went to ops. Um, I then walked over to the deputy. The deputy chief gave me uh, 10 minutes before he went to ops with the chief um, because I needed to know if we, need, if we had any um, personnel or medical error or, or any hot button things that I needed to handle or if, if, some, uh, um, if we'd had an incident or a, a VIP got carried or whatever it was, right? I needed 10 minutes with the deputy. 
And then I left and it was, it was understood that I went and spent the next hour and a half with my QI director. And we reviewed every, we started with every cardiac arrest that had been run in the last week. And every, uh, every cardiac arrest and then every other call for which either there was a need or that month we were reviewing. So one month it was all the asthma calls, right? One month, you know, whatever, whatever the thing was that we thought we had a need to review. And then we went from that, uh, typically I had lunch with the chief, and then in the afternoon was education. And we, I treated education with the medics. I did it. I did an hour of the education with the medics on a rotating basis, and I treated the medics like docs get treated where you do CME. You know, we would, we would cover a topic. Uh, uh, typically, mine was about, uh, mine was about uh, whatever we needed to cover. Uh, oftentimes, it was resuscitation or STEMI or something that was in my wheelhouse. And then we also did an hour of case review. Let's talk about, let's talk about these arrests we ran and how, what we did well and what we didn't. Because um, if you don't have a robust QI culture, you can't improve. And, and that, that, I think that is, uh, you know, agency-wide for all the calls, but specifically in terms of cardiac arrest. It's too time-dependent not, not to review. So as we move forward, so as you move forward in your career on uh, starting true resuscitation um, research and science, can you talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls that we run into or actually talk a little bit about the difference between a registry, something like uh, CARES or NCDR, uh, you know, that, sure. that kind of stuff that are registries versus true research when we're really trying to compare apples to apples? Yeah, so, um, all right, so you can do research out of a registry. It's retrospective. Right. So I can, I could, um, I, I have a young buck at my shop, uh, uh, Dr. Ryan Kurt, and, and he does a bunch of this work with CARES, right? Um, and you submit a question to CARES and CARES will pull the data for you and you can analyze the data. But fundamentally, that registry is just collecting data. And once a year, they spit out a report, right? And, and, and there's lots of value to that. Um, but we're not really kind of doing science. We're kind of reporting the numbers in a registry, right? Um, as registries get larger, um, so CARES, I think, covers like 80% of the population in the United States now. Um, as registries get larger, they get more powerful in terms of the conclusions you can draw. But there has to be research done out of that registry to draw those conclusions. The registry itself doesn't do the science. Someone comes to that resource to do science out of that resource. And that's fundamentally different than something like, um, uh, I don't know, what, what, what's the, uh, the, the dose VF trial that's being done in Canada, right? So, so uh, uh, Sheldon is up there in Canada and he's, he's comparing, um, uh, I, as I recall, it's a randomized controlled trial uh, to take care of um, VF arrests. Right, and he's comparing um, uh, vectors, and I think there's one arm that does dual sequential. Um, if I if I'm not mistaken, but that is true science, right? That is that is a randomized controlled trial being done in the pre-hospital space. Um, those types of trials and that science 
is very challenging in the pre-hospital space. And so we don't do a whole lot of it because most scientists, uh, you know, frankly, are uncomfortable uh, doing science outside the hospital. Yeah, I think we saw we saw some of those difficulties. I think you were you involved in some of the rock trials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So primed that was one example uh-huh. that was very very difficult to do. Yes, um, in the pre-hospital setting. Um, but so with that, um, do you find in even in certain registries, uh, paramedics uh, not necessarily even all educated the same way as to. Uh, what some of the fields mean, um, you know. For instance, we've uh, we've run into some stuff re- recently that we have looked at with some registries on, for instance, um, uh, bystander AEDs. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't. We we have found that uh, the definition of a bystander is not uh, necessarily the same everywhere. Sure. So whether that's sure. a police officer or a, or a, a firefighter, and, and I know you're going to use the term that I really like, so I'm going to let you, I'm not going to steal your thunder on that, but does everyone, <laughs> uh, is everyone on the same page, do you think, with what we're calling bystander CPR or bystander AED, just, just uh, as an example? I hope, but that's the responsibility of the registry to educate the provider. Okay, right? So, so if, if, if there's a saying in, in research and in science that it garbage in equals garbage out, okay? So, so if I can't rely on the data coming in, and one of the ways you get unreliable data is, is there's no consensus on the definition, okay, right? Um, if I get garbage in, then my conclusion, the quality of the conclusion that I draw regardless of how rigorous the the analysis is, is only as good as the data coming in. Okay, so literally garbage in, garbage out. So so it it behooves us that if we're going to make the investment in a registry, if we're going to do it, we ought to do it right. So that if, if we're gonna draw some conclusions, which is, the value of a registry, that those conclusions are correct, right? The, the last thing we really want to do is, is change practice in the wrong direction, and it's predictable, right? I, those of us who have been, um, I'll, not, I won't say old, those of us who are experienced <laughs> enough remember the days of um, giving lidocaine for PVCs, Right? We gave a lot of lidocaine away for PVCs. <laughs> yeah, what were we doing? We we're killing people. It was before my time. Yeah, right. No, we, like if you had <laughs> more than six PVCs in a minute or something, yeah. we used to give lidocaine for that. Yeah, wow. bolus and drip. Yeah, right. Like, man, we should treat that, right? And and why? Well, because there was maybe some data, and maybe yeah, and and the, the conclusion, and and what what happened? We went and did some really rigorous data where we all agreed what the definitions were and, and we got some conclusions that were the exact opposite, mm. right? We were, we were killing people with this stuff. Um, and so while I, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate that everyone wants to, you know, maybe everyone, I hope everyone wants to, to participate in a registry, the quality of the conclusions you can draw from the registry is only as good as the data that comes in. And, 
and it is worth the investment, right, to educate our providers. Because in large part in EMS, it's the providers who are entering the data. I mean, let, let's be honest, there's nobody riding along with the medic who says, oh, let me handle that for you, right? Um, there are no scribes in EMS, right? Uh, that is this idea of scribes <laughs> and, and for physicians, right? There are no scribes. More, may um, have a better paramedic retention if there were, though. Well, yeah, no kidding, right? Or, or maybe that's the rookie. I don't you know. Uh, it's been a long time. Um, but, um, but if we don't educate the folks who are entering the data, then, then the, the conclusions we have are unreliable. Yeah, and, and that was the thing that I think that was so important that CARES did also was to bring in the hospital with it. I think in, you know, that was the missing, the missing link. Uh, you know, we, we would, you know, you sit around and like you said, you sit around and go, oh, well, who had a survivor? Oh, well, I did. Well, how do you know you had a survivor? Oh, uh, well, that's because uh, it was my neighbor's uh, uncle that, uh, you know, showed up at the last family reunion. So we know he survived. Right. Um, you know, so we, we run into, or I've personally run into systems where they say our, our survival rate is this, you know, it's 60, we have a 60% ROSC rate. Well, that's not survivor, you know, survivor is you walk out of the hospital. And if you're not getting those data uh, from leaving the hospital, then you're not getting your true outcomes. I think that was, uh, that was one of the things that CARES really overcame, um, you know, for the first time connecting EMS uh, to the hospital. And, um, so, so with that, what is the next stage for, before we, you tell us a little bit more about the specific research you are doing, what is the next stage of research or data gathering uh, and analysis specifically from pre-hospital? So uh, you just highlighted, uh, you started to highlight the, the evolution in, in, in resuscitation science that we've come to, right? So the outcome we used to measure, the very first outcome we ever measured was ROS. Mm. Um, and that was a combination of, one, that's what you got and it was rare. Okay, right? That was a win. That was a big win, right? And, and two, you were limited by how far you could track these people, right? The hospital wasn't giving you any data. So the only meaningful outcome you could track was, was ROS grade. Uh, and, and really that ROS rate isn't telling you anything. Because you got a pulse back in the field doesn't mean that person survives to get admitted, survives five days from now, makes it out of the ICU. I mean, we haven't even made it out of the hospital yet, right? But that was the first outcome. And then we evolved. So we evolved, we, we finally had a critical mass of, and we figured out kind of how to get ROSC. And we evolved. And, and so the next outcome that we tracked in systems that were high performing was, survival out of the hospital, right? You, you left the hospital with a pulse. That was the next evolution. That's all well and good, but like most of the, a lot of those people left the hospital and they're, they're traked and pegged and, and mm. right. So, and, and they go to some long-term care facility and, and, and have, you know, what I would, con what I would consider, um, kind of not much of a life, right? They're, they're, they're borderline permanently vegetative state or, or they require 24-hour nursing care, right? Um, and and they don't, they're not able to interact with their family. And, and that, that doesn't feel like a win. And so we evolved to then, uh, but we could, we could finally get that data from the hospital. And so then what we did was we evolved to neurologically intact out uh, survival, right? So this is the idea that, what, what you and I think of as a survivor, you, you, your heart stops, 
you get your heart restarted, you get admitted to the hospital, and at some point afterwards, you leave the hospital intact, meaning you go home uh, either back to your life or you go back and, and you require a, a, a modicum, a modest amount of assistance in order, but you can live at home, right? And that's neurologically intact survival. But in order to be able to define that and be able to track it and, and it be meaningful, we had to come up with some scales to say, this is meaningful survival. And, and yeah, you left the hospital, but this is not neurologically intact survival. And that's, that's in large part um, CPC scores, right? So uh, cerebral performance category that was uh, uh, derived in Pittsburgh or MRS, Modified Rankin Scale, which is actually borrowed from our friends in stroke. Um, uh, because in reality, resuscitation is a brain, it's a brain, it's a brain injury, it's a brain disease. Um, but once we got to neurologically intact survival, and we now have a critical mass of neurologically intact survivors, um, the next, the, the, the next, kind of frontier, and that's what we're starting to study now, are the disparities mm. in neurologically intact survival, right? So I would love to be able to tell you that um, it doesn't matter where you arrest in the United States, or it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, or it doesn't matter what race you are, or it doesn't matter um, uh, if you arrest at home or if you rest in a public place. But what the disparity literature tells us is that at every link in the chain of survival, there are gross disparities. And when I say gross, there, there, there are disparities that are so large, they can't be explained by um, you know, regional variations in whatever, right? Um, uh, because, because EMS, like we touched on this earlier, EMS, if you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system, you've seen what, right? It's all local, right? But th there are such gross disparities, uh, that they're unexplainable, um, and by, by usual variation. And so that being said, that is the new frontier in resuscitation science. It is, it is closing the disparity gap. Now survivors when you say disparity are you speaking about race gender income what necessarily are you uh whenever you whenever you talk about disparities how would you define that uh i, I think gender race <clears throat> socioeconomic income um uh access to health care um all of those things mm. And is that something that should be attacked um, anecdotally, or is this something we can leverage these uh, registries for to really pinpoint in on, you know, because you go to some communities and the racial disparities are greater than the um, socioeconomic or the gender. Um, is, is this something we can use these registries for to kind of identify in each where the greatest disparities are? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that the beauty, the strength, the beauty of the registry is that if we get good data coming in, we can see these disparities, right? Without, without, um, without a registry, all these disparities are just anecdotal, right? Um, you know, uh, so, uh, 
you know, in my, uh, my, in my own town, right, I know that there's a line uh, that divides our town, um, my, my municipality, where, where there is a significant difference in survival, right? Uh, fold higher uh, on one side of this line than the other, right? And, and, uh, and without a registry, all we'd say is, gee, you know, um, if you arrest, you know, north of, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, let's call it Sixth Street, if you or, or in other in other towns, it's like if on the other side of the tracks or whatever it is, right? The other side of the highway, you know. Anecdotally, if if you arrest over there, <laughs> you know, your chance of survival is pretty bad. Um, but uh, you know, on this side of of whatever it is, like you know, you got a fighting chance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so we are we are motivated here at UAB by the the adage that geography should not be destiny, mm. right? Where you arrest should not determine whether or not you get a chance at survival. That's great, um, uh, and that has been our driving principle um, uh, for the work the the work that we do now. It's that it's that geography shouldn't matter. So what kind of um, kind of diving into maybe some of the projects that you've been involved with and some of the the uh, the research that you are doing? What is the future of that? Are there any devices or are there any programs or, um, you know, systems of care models that that can address this? I think. I think we are just realizing that this exists. So, so, um, so those of us in the resuscitation community every year uh, go to a, a conference. It's called um, the Resuscitation Science Symposium. It's, it's uh, an add-on. It's, a, it's on the front end of uh, AHA scientific sessions every year, and, and that's always in the first week of November. And, um, and uh, you know, whether designed or not, um, uh, each one of those annually seems to have a theme. Um, and, and what we all noticed right before COVID, uh, I think it was in 18, it might've been in 19, I think it was in 18, is that without any influence from the program committee, the theme really was disparity, right? Lots of people were doing epidemiology work that was demonstrating these, these enormous disparities um, in survival. And, oh, and and the disparity was over things that we have agreed on as a society should not matter, Mm. right? If you believe in equity, these disparities should not exist. And we we know they exist. And so to the extent that we can have, instead of, can I put more AEDs, uh, you know, can I buy more AEDs? Um, Can I... um, you know, buy more ambulances, can we reduce response times, right? Um, truly focusing on these now apparent disparities and focus on attempting targeted interventions that are culturally contextualized to fix, or, or not fix, but at least address these disparities. That's, that's where we're going. So take us through... Uh... Now, some of the, uh, you know, you mentioned some of the retrospective 
things that happen uh, with registries. What are some of the prospective things uh, that you're doing kind of, uh, you know, lo looking at uh, the physical side of resuscitation? Um, you know, you've done some some work with Reboa and uh, things like that, maybe some medications that are coming down the line, some neuroprotective medications. What, what are kind of some things on the horizon that you guys are looking to do there um, at uh, your uh, lab. So we, we are, so, uh, let me, let me, let me pick out three projects. Um, so the first one, and, and so the, the first two are kind of acute phase intra arrest projects. And the third one is, is kind of an immediate peri or post arrest. Um, the first one is we are investigating the idea for, to use Reboa in cardiac arrest. So for those unfamiliar with Reboa, Reboa is, um, uh, a, a technique and a, a tool that was first used in the Korean War. Um, it is a balloon occlusion of the aorta uh, via catheter. Okay, so the idea being that for trauma, if you've got major uh, chest uh, or belly trauma, that you would be able to access the femoral artery, slide a, cath a balloon-tipped catheter into the femoral artery, up into the arch of the aorta, blow that balloon up, and occlude the aorta. Now you ask, why, why would you do this? Um, you do this because if you occlude the aorta, it is physiologically the same as a thoracotomy, right? So we do for trauma, right? Uh, an ED thoracotomy and the cross clamp, right? It, it, it's for exactly the same reason. If you, if you occlude the aorta, you uh, divert all blood flow, all cardiac output, either back to the heart or up to the brain. That's really good in cardiac arrest because the two things I need are blood flow to the brain to keep it alive. And I need coronary perfusion pressure for, mm. uh, Bob Berg was the first scientist to demonstrate very clearly that you cannot, you cannot, uh, resuscitate anyone without a coronary perfusion pressure greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. And to put that in perspective, right, like the, that, that's, uh, you know, an average blood pressure is like 120 over 80, right? We're talking about a fraction of that. So the pressure within the coronary arteries. Right? So if we could put Reboa up and divert that blood to the brain, preferentially to the brain and, and back to the heart and, and make the rest of the body ischemic, that's a good thing. And we know this works, right? So uh, in the pig lab, Carl Kern did lots of work in the pig lab, uh, like I think in the early 80s, that demonstrated that this worked. And then, and then up until, I don't know, maybe mid-90s, thor medical thoracotomy was an accepted technique, right? So now we don't ever do it. But the idea that you would open a chest for a, cardiac, a medical cardiac arrest and 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 cross clamp the aorta and massage the heart it works great mm. the problem is nobody survives the <laughs> non-sterile procedure which is opening a chest i mean like it is a barbaric uh having done one this weekend like it is a barbaric uh less than sterile time dependent procedure and but if i could do it without having to open a chest that's a good thing Right. I mean, that's a, that's a physiologic fix. 
So that's one of the things we're exploring. One of the things we're really interested in exploring that is not can we resuscitate you, but what do we do once the balloon's up? Hmm. That's a whole different conversation. Um, <laughs> uh, number two, um, I'd like to know what the heart's doing during CPR. Um, and uh, some, some of my colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania have dropped an echo probe during cardiac arrest, a, a transesophageal echo during cardiac arrest. And where, so they put this in behind the heart in your esophagus and look forward at the heart. And what we can figure out is that traditional CPR is not perfect for everybody. Uh, and, and Philippe uh, has, has demonstrated a, a, at rest where you're watching these folks get CPR and the TE probes in and clearly the CPR is occluding the aorta. The blood's not going anywhere. Mm. Right? With a simple positional change, like it makes night and day. Um, and so being able to direct the resuscitation in real time, the quality, and when I say quality, not necessarily like depth and rate, I'm talking about the position of the CPR um, means that, that that's a big deal, right? So, so traditional cardiac arrest, you get some drugs, we put the Reboa in, I include the aorta, I have, I have directed CPR, so I am maximizing the cardiac output. Once I get you back, really what I need to do is figure out whether or not the insult that you have uh, is so great that you're not going to survive. It doesn't matter what I do. Um, or not, right? So the idea that that cardiac arrest is a brain injury and, and it, there's a spectrum of disease. And this is kind of novel for cardiac arrest, right? So, so ACLS teaches us that everybody gets the same of everything, right? For example, right? Everybody gets the same rate of CPR. Everybody gets the same one dose of epi, one milligram of epi at the same interval. That's crazy talk, right? Um, <laughs> right that... The, and, and part of that is so that we standardize cardiac arrest so everybody's not just doing everything. And I, I get that. But the idea that, that cardiac arrest and the injury from cardiac arrest is not a spectrum of disease is, is just loony tunes. Um, so, so following your cardiac arrest, what I would like to be able to do in the science we're doing at UAB would be to split you into three buckets, okay? Uh, survivors. One bucket is the folks who have very, very little injury or, or a very mild injury, right? It doesn't matter what I do to them. They're going to do well in spite of me. Okay. Right. That's humbling. Yeah. Right. But so, so what I really <laughs> should just do is leave them alone, right? You know, they need some supportive care, but really they don't need the ultra aggressive stuff we do. And then there's a, unfortunately there's a group at the other end of the spectrum that the insult is so large it is so profound that it doesn't really matter what we're going to do. They're going to die, mm. right? They, or, or if they don't die, they will have no quality of life. And, and we need to acknowledge that if we can early so that we can better allocate our resources and so that families have time to grieve. And, and, and we can treat the family because cardiac arrest is a lot like stroke. A, a person does not have a cardiac arrest a person does not have a stroke. Um, a, a, a person and their entire family have this condition. It's a great okay? point, right? And there's an entire support network of survivors that, uh, of survivorship that you have to you have to support. And then there's the group in the middle, and the group in the middle are the true treatment responsive folks. They have enough injury that they're not normal, but 
it's not so profound that it's not kind of a lost cause. And so that's the, that is where we have focused our effort to attempt to identify those folks um, so that they can get the ultra aggressive posture. That's, that's kind of what we call it. The, the, the maximally invasive um, uh, resources so that we can maximize their opportunity to, to survive neurologically intact. So that, that just highlights kind of three projects that we are working on um, in order to, to well optimize cardiac arrest for the, for the kind of the next frontier. So let me ask you, just based on those, um, obviously, Reboa, that's going to be something that's going to be done in the hospital. Uh, you talked about a TTE, a TEE, uh, transesophageal echo. Is there an opportunity for a transthoracic echo in mm. the field to be able to determine uh, hand placement and depth and effectiveness of chest compressions? Um, it's really hard. Um, so, so two things. One, Transthoracic echo almost always gets in the way because the, the fields I need are where you should probably be putting your hands. And, and the more we look at the literature, um, trans, uh, a transthoracic echo, so on the outside of the chest, really interrupts CPR a lot. And, and what I really need is CPR. I need high-quality CPR, right? So um, – is there an opportunity? Yes, in a in the hands of a highly skilled operator, in a in a victim with a habitus that is very um, favorable. Sure, um, but not routinely. With transesophageal, routinely I can get the views I want and need. Now let's talk about Reboa for a moment. Please don't write it off. <laughs> okay, I've got we have special operations medics who are putting Reboas in in the field, in theater. Mm. Okay, and that's where this technology actually comes from. Um, it is from the Korean War. Um, and, and now we have, in modern era, um, folks placing these devices in, in theater to try to save wounded warriors. And so what I would hope we could envision is much like the extension of defibrillators into the field, mm -hmm. RSI into the field, right, is that the next frontier of what we could do is perhaps Reboa in the field, in a civilian context, right? That's incredible. Right, so the idea that, that a medic, or maybe, maybe it's a physician responder like in a mm -hmm. European, but there would be a, there'd be a, a, a true pre-hospital responder who would be trained to do Reboa, and we could put those things in in the field for cardiac arrest and for true trauma, true multi-system penetrating trauma. And, and why is that? It's because we have proven that it will save lives in trauma. But what we'd really like to prove is that it will save lives in cardiac arrest. And, and the physiology makes sense. The animal models make sense. And there's about 10 times as many cardiac arrest opportunities to save those lives as there are trauma opportunities to save those lives. And if it becomes about... Um, proficiency in a low volume, high risk procedure in an uncontrolled environment, right? I want to, con like everything else in EMS, like it's like intubation in EMS, right? I want to concentrate that expertise in a, in a provider who's able, who is comfortable and able 
And the last time they've done this is not a year ago. Hmm. Right? They, they, they are facile and it is routine because they have developed that expertise. So where do you think that sweet spot is? If you're, you know, if you're in an ultra urban area and you're five minutes from a, uh, from a hospital, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, I can't imagine, you, you know, doing something like Roboa in the field really is going to, you know, delaying transport perhaps may not be the best thing, you know, perhaps being out, uh, you know, an hour from a hospital may not be a, a great thing. Where do you think that sweet spot is and what communities uh, geographically or otherwise would something like this kind of uh, really be of the most benefit? Um, I, I think there's, you know, so I don't, I, I don't know. So we haven't gotten, I don't think it's been deployed enough in a civilian context in the field to figure out what that sweet spot is. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that even with a five minute transport time, uh, if I, if truly what I had was a cardiac arrest and, and we were doing this, that I wouldn't say, no, put the balloon up hmm. and I stay and do it. Well, I mean, if you have to deploy that re that resource from a from an area, to, oh yeah, I mean, um, if they're yeah, right, 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 right. If I have to, but if it's already there, yeah, you know. I, I, so when I was a medical director, I was a big before we were doing eCPR, right? I was a big proponent of stay and play for cardiac arrest, and and the argument I would make with my medics was, you, I don't offer you anything at the hospital that you can't do. <laughs> Right, and this is these were in the days we were doing cold saline in the field, and 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 you know fundamentally, like fundamentally, if I've trained you well, if the medic is well trained and is bright, the hospital until the era of kind of eCPR, we didn't the hospital didn't really offer anything that that couldn't be brought to the patient's side, right? If if you design the system well. Um, and so I was a big advocate in our system to stay in play. Now, um, I think that that calculation has changed a bit with the advent of eCPR. There's a, there's a reason to scoop and run, and it's because, it, at least in, in the civilian context in the States, we can't really deploy eCPR. Now, that's very different than in Europe, right? The, the guys at SAMU do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I'm sure you guys have seen the, the, the response vehicle in Minnesota that oh, yeah. got, right? <laughs> um, right? So for folks who are not aware of, uh, uh, Dimitri Yiannopoulos has just deployed this um, very large ambulance that essentially you can do, I mean, I think you can cath in the back of the you thing. You can. There's a, it's essentially a cath lab. It's essentially C a C-arm, fluoro. Right, right. C-arm fluoro, you can cath and do ECPR in the back of the thing, and it's on wheels, right? Like, um, and so outside of contexts like that, where I can bring it, maybe there's a reason to scoop and run. But if I can bring Reboa to you, um, I don't know, I might make an argue to stay in play. I, I think what that really requires is, um, you know, an, an N of more than one, uh, an experience of more than one person or, or one municipality to figure out how that, you know, how that deploys. Um, and then um, engage medical who can weigh the options in a thoughtful way, right? If I, if I don't have eCPR access and 
I'm not really sure why I'm scooping and running. Right. If I got eCPR and it's five minutes away, and it's a VF arrest, and I and I give them a shock and a a shock and a dose, and I can't get them out. Um, I think you make a pretty reasonable argument that what you really ought to do is go into the hospital and put them on pump. Um, I, that's that's a you know that's a that's a reason for a system. That's a reason to build a system and and rule not rules but guidelines on on what to do and where to go. Yeah, and Absolutely. I think the commitment there too. I mean, the, the hospital has to make that commitment um, oh, sure. uh, to the system, and and I think traditionally hospitals have been reluctant to do that. You know, it's been a you know we'll put them in the hospital if they survive. We'll you know we'll do some stuff for them, and if they don't, uh, you know that's kind of what happens. And you know, even across cardiology, the the difference in how even an interventionalist is going to care for the patient, the spectrum is incredibly wide yeah. um and and so the all the more reason for the data uh to be able to show that and to be able to um not force people's hands but show uh and like in and, and like you said too though the knowing which ones are going to benefit most from um a therapy or for being aggressive uh and a lot of that disconnect we have found is in the information gathered from the scene to those that are going to be doing um, either the immediate care or the definitive care. Uh, if we don't have that information correct, then we're likely going to err on the side of, well, downtime was probably longer than we're, than what we're uh, maybe thinking and uh, neurological outcome is probably not going to be um, there or, you know, the patient's not going to survive. So we're going to be less aggressive. So I think all those things together are uh, really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kurz, I just want to thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, we, we've, we've had you for a pretty good bit now, but uh, maybe in closing, I just wanted to say at the beginning, I was definitely joking about the blonde hair comment. Um, <laughs> whenever you were at the conference <laughs> in Atlanta, um, I do want to say this in, in all seriousness and encourage you to keep doing what you're doing, because the way that you pour into paramedics, the way that you pour into EMS and you are a champion of us, I can't tell you what it means. Uh, you you won probably a thousand fans after speaking that morning. So I just want to say thank you personally because it uh, it truly means the world to have somebody, you know, standing up for us like that. So oh, it's 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 my pleasure, um, and and it's because I have roots. Um, uh, I have I, I've got pre-hospital roots, right? Um, and and this is really where um, I cut my teeth. Uh, and so to the extent uh, that I have, I had the privilege uh, to train in the pre-hospital space, I, I feel it is my responsibility um, to be able to advocate mm. um, for the professionals that slog it out every day in the back of an ambulance or on the street. And um, I, I'm, I'm uniquely aware of the challenges that an uncontrolled environment provide. And so I am universally thankful uh, for the job that EMS does uh, every day. And, and frankly, they're doing right now as we're talking um, to make sure that our, our communities get cared for. Well, I would uh, encourage those uh, listening to uh, kind of just research a little bit more about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think they're going to see some things coming in the near future, your name on a lot of uh, 
you know, some updates and some changes of, of things coming down the line uh, with AHA and, you know, some of the guidelines. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, my frustration over the last several decades is a lot of the recommendations and guidelines have just been kind of based on a lot of good ideas, a lot of expert con uh, consensus. Uh, I know I am encouraged by uh, some of the future things that I that I hope to see come out are truly based on science and mm. you know the best evidence out there and uh with you at that helm um i think we're in a a really good sp uh spot to know that uh what comes out is going to be meaningful um but uh i think probably for me the things that you have said that resonated most with me if we're not measuring it then it really doesn't matter uh, that we have to commit, that we have to make that commitment and not just as an EMS agency, but really as a system to really understand that. Um, so do you have any recommendations, uh, you, those that want to kind of learn more about resuscitation? What are some of the best journals or, um, you know, some of the best places we kind of go to, to, you know, see this kind of in a, you know, in a nutshell, kind of get the the down and dirty without having to go uh, too far, but we can really get the the kind of the the meat of what we should know about resuscitation and kind of where we're headed as a uh, as a profession. So, uh, if you want to pick a journal, a scientific journal, it's resuscitation. It's the gold standard mm -hmm. for the for us, and that's a it's a European resuscitation, uh, uh, the ERC journal. And the beauty of the ERC's journal is that um, you get uh, a flare of science that's also being done outside the United States, right? So it's not US focused. And, and frankly, um, our colleagues in Europe, our colleagues in Japan, our colleagues in Korea, our colleagues in Australia and New Zealand, they all skin this cat kind of differently. And um, we can all benefit from reading and sharing that knowledge. If you really want um, the kind of the whole enchilada experience, um, yeah. there is nothing better than um, uh, the Resuscitation Science Symposium as part of AHA scientific sessions in the, in the fall. It'll be in November this year. It's always the first week in November. Um, I believe it's in Chicago this year, although I may be incorrect. Um, and um, there are, for all of our, everyone listening in EMS, there are stipends, there are travel scholarships for you to be able to go um, because we appreciate that. So the Heart Association and the three CPR council appreciates that for EMS providers, traveling um, to this conference and staying for a couple of days is, is, is a fairly expensive endeavor. Um, but to attempt to offset a large part of that cost, there are um, uh, travel scholarships um, that you can apply for through the AHA so that you can come and, and be part of the resuscitation community. And, and frankly, over the years, a number of the folks who have um, gone and done that have then gone on to um, uh, volunteer for the Heart Association, influence the guidelines, sit on uh, AHA committees that, that that provide guidance and write statements and 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 influence uh, the care not just of the patient in front of you, not just the care of the patients that your agency may take care of, but quite literally the the standard by which um, most of the U.S. and a large portion of the world uh, resuscitates patients. Mm. Nice, awesome. 
Well, thank you again, sir, for your time. And uh, we hope to see you soon. I look forward to it. Uh, I, it was a great time there in Georgia when you guys had me out. You were so very kind. Uh, the hospitality was outstanding. Uh, awesome. And uh, I look forward to the next, uh, next chance I get to come say hi to you guys. Yes, sir. Well, take care and be safe out there. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.